0: Well, let me add my welcome. My name is Paul Reese, and I get to serve as a, one of the pastors here at Shark Chapel. It's my privilege and opportunity to uh, open up God's word to you. So please open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 9 that was read for us a moment ago. And let's ask God's help as we come and look at it. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, What an extraordinary thing that we can come and approach you, the God who is sovereign over all he has created. And so we take a moment to still our hearts and realize what a privilege it is. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, we may come to know you more and that we may understand your astonishing mercy in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wonder what is it that makes you sad? What gets you upset? Uh, it may be a variety of things, perhaps, that makes you... F- it's very interesting to find out what makes people sad because it actually reveals quite a bit about what's really important to them, what really drives them, what, they are, what they're about. But I wonder, is there anything for you that causes you... Uh, unceasing sorrow you just constantly feel sorrow over this thing does it cause you is there something that causes you anguish I know for some of you there are those things I know that because I've been a pastor here for about 12 years but I wonder what what is it is there anything like that for you I've been very humbled this week to compare what makes me sad with what makes the Apostle Paul sad, and it was read for us a moment ago in Romans chapter 9. It's a new section in his letter. Uh, We finished last week in chapter 8 with this amazing great confidence that Paul had, that uh, we were more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, that nothing circumstantially could get in the way of God's love for us in Jesus. And it's a real high point in chapter 8. And from that, we turn to him expressing his anguish. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. He wants us to know he's for real. He's not saying this for effect. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? Why? Verse 3, 4. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Why? Well, because he, to think of the obstinate response of his own people to the gospel that Jesus is their Messiah. As he sees their hardness, it causes him unceasing anguish. Consider his passion for those who don't trust Jesus. He says, Look, if it was possible, he would wish himself cursed so that. Uh, if, if it meant that people would then come to trust Jesus Christ for themselves. And he's like Moses here. I don't remember Moses where he's pleading on behalf of the people. Uh, blot me out of your book, he tells God. If it would mean that the people would be forgiven for their sinful rebellion. Paul is really being shaped, in a sense, by the love of Christ here, isn't it, who did sacrifice himself for the sake of others. But of course, it's not possible for us to do such a thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God to us in Jesus. But this verse, these verses explain, I suppose, the, the missionary passion that drove him to proclaim the gospel and keep sharing the gospel even when he got a a hard response back from other people, both to his fellow Jews as well as to non-Jews, Gentiles. That's what the Bible means by Gentiles, the non-Jewish people like all the rest of the nations. And he put himself in danger. He put himself into uncomfortable places. He experienced deprivation and suffering because he kept sharing the good news about Jesus with others and if we're not feeling that for the people of Edinburgh or for the nations that we grew up in perhaps we should be seeking God's help in this, that he would work in our hearts to give us that same passion that will spend ourselves in order to share the good news of Jesus with others but not only was it anguish in his heart but it kind of perplexed his mind to see this hardness amongst his own people for after all they are people who had had so many privileges and yet they still rejected their own messiah and he lists the amazing privileges to his fellow jews there in um, in verse uh, four theirs is the adoption to sonship God had declared, Israel, my firstborn son. This is what God instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh. Theirs is the divine glory, the glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple, uh, that they had the Ark of the Covenant where where, where, um, God is enthroned, he says, uh, between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. They had the covenants, God's amazing promises, Those covenant promises to Abraham and Moses and David. There's the receiving of the law. They had the temple worship. They had all the promises, all the promises relating to the Messiah, how he would be prophet, priest, and king, the perfect one that would rescue and save his people. They had all these things. There's the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry. Of the Messiah, verse 5, who is God over all, forever praised. Now, don't miss this great Christmas verse in verse 5. We've got the tree up, so let's have a Christmas verse. It's there in verse 5. The wonder of the incarnation. Jesus was truly human, his human ancestry, and he was truly divine. God over all. That's why we're singing. Joy to the world! I bet we'll be singing that a few times in the coming weeks. Joy to the world! God has come in human flesh. What an amazing thing! And He came in the line of the Jewish people. He came as a Jewish man. So how can this apostasy be explained? How is it these people can, can turned away from Jesus, as their Messiah? And what does that say? about the security of God's salvation. Now we rejoiced last week, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But if God has taken back his promises to the Jews, then Christians can have no such assurance. How do we know that God won't do the same to us? We're often disobedient, uh, will God take away his promises from us too? Does this represent a failure of God's faithfulness to keep his promises to save Israel? Well, these are the weighty matters that chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with. Uh, we'll, we'll move to chapter 10 next week. Chapter 11 will be in the, in the new year. But these are three chapters deal with these weighty matters. And so this morning, we're just going to think about three key questions as we go into Romans chapter 9 today. The first question is this, has God's word failed? Has God's word failed? And Paul answers, no. Look at verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all Israel For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, he says. Not every ethnic Jew is part of the people of God. That's what he's arguing. Physical descent from Abraham does not automatically make you part of the people of God. As it says in verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. And he illustrates this. In a sense, it's like a Sunday school time. This is the, the great wonder and beauty of doing Sunday school. You get to know the whole story of the Bible and, and uh, see how it fits together. But he goes back to the, to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis, and he makes it clear that God has always chosen his people. That God's people are his people because God has chosen them to be his people. So take a look at Abraham's children, he says. God had given Abraham a promise that he would have children, but as he and his wife, Sarah, get into their old age, childless, they decide to take things into their own hands. And Abraham fathered a son through Sarah's servant, Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael. But God made it clear, it would not be through Ishmael that he would bless the world. It would be through the offspring of Sarah, who miraculously, eventually, did get pregnant. And she gave birth to Isaac. Uh, Verse seven, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And then consider the next generation. He moves on to the next illustration. Isaac married Rebekah, and she conceived twins. Look at verse 11. Yet before the twins were born, who had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So against all expectations, against all kind of human standards at the time, God chose the younger, and not the older. It's even more striking than the first illustration because it's, it's clear it's got nothing to do with one child being more eligible than the other. They were twins, same dad, same mum. But before they were born, before they'd done anything, God had made a decision that he had revealed to their mother, the old will serve the younger. And what Genesis is teaching us, and this is what Paul's bringing out here, is that God has... A purpose and a plan. And God elected to choose Jacob, that through Jacob the nation of Israel would come and the blessings would pass on. Now, this is not hard for us to understand, but I think it is hard for us to accept because um, the whole idea that our salvation doesn't rest on our good deeds or our effort or because there's something exceptional about us, or special about us anyway, well, that that humbles us. We kind of think, well, you know, I must contribute something to this. But no, the Bible is clear that our salvation rests because God chose to love us. Because God chose to save us. So has God's word failed when we see Jewish people reject their Messiah? Paul says, no, because God has chosen to save some, but not all. And I want to tell you that if you're a Christian today, you should know this. It is because God has chosen you. It is because God has chosen to love you and save you. And I think that's a mind-blowing thought. Now, we're all perhaps aware of a time when we heard the the gospel, where we understood that we had to repent and, and, and put our trust in Jesus. But how was it that we came to hear the gospel? How come it came to us? And how was it that suddenly we knew that it was true and that we needed to act? What explains that? The Bible tells us this, it is because God chose to save us. In his electing love, he called us to himself. And this is just what Jesus taught as well. Think what he says in John chapter 15. He says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. A few verses later, he says to them, I have chosen you out of the world. Or earlier in John chapter six, Jesus tells them, this is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. God has always chosen his people. And if you're trusting Jesus today, it's because God has chosen you. That many of, the, of, of his fellow Israelites were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah does not mean that God's word had failed because God has only chosen to save some, is what he's arguing in Romans chapter 9. But no doubt this is raising questions in your minds. Perhaps there's questions forming in your mind right now. And it's interesting that Paul is aware of this because there's another question to think. And the question is this Is God just? Is God just? Uh, Is God unjust in exercising his sovereign choice? Is God unjust to only save some? Look at verse 14. This is where it goes. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not unjust at all, he says. No, look, says Paul. Look at what he said to Moses in Exodus chapter 33. This, this is a chapter that's full of quotes from the, the Old Testament. Following the rebellion uh, of the Israelites while Moses was receiving the, um, the written tablets from God when they kind of decided to make this golden calf and party hard at the bottom of the mountain, this rebellion against God, the Lord strikes the people with a plague where some died and some lived. And in an explanation of God's judgment, he says this to Moses. is quoted there in verse 15 of our chapter. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This sovereign choice of God Of who's saved is not, you see, an issue of justice. If it's justice we want from God, then all people deserve condemnation. There is no one righteous. When it comes to salvation, it's not justice we need, what we need is mercy. We need God's mercy. Verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. To some, he shows mercy. And to others, well, they do not receive God's mercy. And the example of that from the Old Testament is a Pharaoh. Someone who does not receive mercy. Mercy, but instead experiences the judgment of God. Now, he was the ruler over Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Moses was told to go to him and command Pharaoh to to let uh, God's people go to release them from their slavery. How did Pharaoh respond? Well, he kept hardening his heart against God's command. He says this in Exodus chapter 5 Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel? Go. He's not going to allow the economy of his country to go down the tank because of a little issue of uh, slavery of these people. And so Egypt continued to experience the 10 plagues of God's judgment. Now, initially, the book of Exodus records that it's Pharaoh hardening his heart, but then as the plagues go on, it says that the Lord hardened his heart. Interesting. It began with him hardening his heart. And then the Lord confirms the hardness of his heart by hardening the hardness. But all of this was part of God's plan for rescuing his people. Verse 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord chose not to have mercy on Pharaoh for the purpose that God's power might be displayed in saving his people. Look at verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens those whom he wants to harden. Now, I think this is very hard for us to take on board because we like to think of ourselves as the free agents who control our own destinies. But This kind of truth humbles us as we realize that God is the one who is free to act as he wishes. And I I think this will be the very reason that we shall be eternally grateful that our salvation rests on the mercy of God. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is about undeserved love, where out of the love and the kindness of God, we don't receive the judgment that we deserve. That's mercy. We should be in no doubt, from our earlier reading of Romans, we are all unrighteous. We all deserve the judgment of God. And amazingly, God shows mercy He doesn't give us the judgment that we deserve. And this is, of course, what we need to wrap our heads around, is that, you know what, God does not owe salvation to anybody. No one is entitled to God's salvation. He is free to have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy It is humbling, isn't it? And if you're someone who's trusting Christ today, you should be eternally thankful. He's had mercy on me. But this might raise another objection, another question, is God fair? Is God fair? Look at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist His will? If God chose not to save some, then is God fair to hold such people accountable and judge them? And why does God not choose to elect everyone to be saved? These are the These are big questions, I'm sure. Every thoughtful Christian has wrestled with them. Now, there are a few points that uh, Paul makes to this charge. Firstly, there's a word of caution to remind us who we are in relationship to God. Look at verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? And so I think this is a sobering reminder to us that we are not equals with God. We are created beings. He is the creator. We must never forget that while God has so graciously condescended to communicate to us so that we have a, a true knowledge of him, we will never have a complete knowledge of him and his plans. For he is God and we are his creatures. When my children were very young, uh, they would ask me questions. They would ask me lots of questions. And I would seek to give them true answers, but at a level that they could understand. And at a level that they could actually cope with, that it wouldn't unnecessarily burden them. That's a kind thing when parents do that, isn't it? Not lay all the burdens of the world on their young kids, help them have a, a happy childlike uh, growing up period, because they don't have to bear the burdens of the world. And so we offer answers that will give true answers, but we don't burden them. Well the God who created the, the whole cosmos by his word, and who understands all things, who knows the end from the beginning. Has a mind that is so far above our limited capacities that we cannot grasp all his plans and purposes. And in his kindness, he doesn't burden us with all that there is to know. He's eternally existed. He's formed us out of dust of the ground. He's breathed his life into us so we can truly relate to him and have a, a true relationship with him. But we need to remember, we are not equals with God. And so there's a time to be a bit like Job. Remember Job experiencing all those terrible setbacks and sufferings and loss? And he says, I, I want to talk with God. I want to I I make my case before God. And at the end, God re- reminds him of his creatorial power, Were you there when I when I made the heavens and the earth? Were you there when I we sang the song? Behold our God. Who is an amazing God like this? Were you there when I created everything? When I when I set all that do do you understand all of this? Do you understand? Job goes, I put my hand over my mouth. God is God. And we are not. And we need to have humility to know that he's not revealed it all to us. And he could have just finished there, couldn't he? I mean, that's a strong enough argument. But he does say a few more things. Verse 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, I think this is a humbling but helpful image. Uh, We've got some clay in our garage. And every now and again, Shona just has a a desire to be creative. And uh, she goes and makes things. In the past, she's made uh, broken down Glasgow tenements. She's made fairy tale castles. And my favorite is this, the word became flesh. And she takes the clay and she makes these interesting things out of them. And And it's entirely up to her what she wants to make out of them. And it's entirely up to her what she wants to do with the things that she has made. Well, here's the truth about God and us. God is the potter, and we're the clay. And as a potter reserves the right to to create whatever uh, they want to create out of the clay, so God reserves the same right to deal with rebellious, sinful humanity in the way that he determines. God is free to do what he wants. To show mercy to some and to harden others. And as our creator, he's free to act as our judge. Look at verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, why does God act as he does? God is in all things revealing his glory. That's what God is doing in the world. In all things, he is revealing his glory. And God shows the glory of his patience. As he graciously allows rebel sinners to continue their lives and enjoying all the benefits of of his creation, even as they reject him and ignore him, God graciously keeps giving people so much time. But there is a day of judgment and destruction coming for all who remain in rebellion against God, in rebellion against God. As people um, made in the image of God, we do yearn for justice. Um, There was some Oh, some, just some terrible things in the newspapers this week about abuse of children and so forth. And when we hear these terrible crimes of how cruelly people are, treat others, we, we yearn for justice. We long that people face up to the consequences of their evil deeds. And God's glory will be revealed in his perfect just judgment on the final day when all wickedness and evil will be judged. I missed out on tickets of uh, Handel's Messiah, the Dunedin concert. I love hearing them, but I missed out on the tickets this year. But uh, there's all these Messiah concerts going on around the place at this time of the year. I remember the, the, the time I was in a concert and it struck me freshly. The Hallelujah Chorus, the famous Hallelujah Chorus. Where does that come? It comes after God has effected his judgment all who remain standing are singing the praises of God, the judge, who's ultimately done, done away with all evil and all injustice, and it's hallelujah, hallelujah. And on that day of God's just judgment, we will come to understand God's undeserved mercy on us in a way that we will never understood before. We may have some appreciation of it now, but on the day of judgment, my friends, we are going to understand what an extraordinary thing it is that God should have mercy on us. And the way that God has chosen to act sovereignly in history, showing mercy to some and not others, means that God's glory is somehow revealed in a fuller way than it would be if He had chosen everyone. Now I I can't wrap my head around that and it still raises lots of questions for me but I, I, I need to humble myself and say this is what God has revealed of himself to us. This is how God has chosen to act. And so God is not unfair in the way he holds us accountable for our sinful actions. They were our sinful actions even as he works out his merciful plan of salvation. What is amazing is that his mercy extends To so many. He has planned to save both Jews, his ancient people, and Gentiles from the nations who are not his people. That's exactly what he recounts from Hosea and Isaiah in these remaining verses. From out the nations of the world and from Israel. Look at verse 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. And that's what we see in this church. People from many different nations and ethnicities. Most of us, I don't think, have a Jewish background. And yet now we are considered loved people of God. We are the children of God. If we've put our trust in the Lord Jesus. And if many Jewish people were still rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, then there have always been Jewish people who have still recognized that Jesus is their Messiah and experienced the saving mercy of God. As verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel that the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. So as I close, let me just um, try and apply some of these things to our hearts as we think about God's sovereign choice. Number one, it humbles us and it exalts God. It humbles us but it exalts God. We make no contribution to our salvation. It is solely based on the electing mercy of God. And that is totally undeserved. Secondly, God is faithful to all his promises. All these extensive quotes from the Old Testament underline that what we see happening in the world is God working out his sovereign plans. We can trust God. His promises to us God's word has not failed nor will it if God is for us who can be against us nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord know that for a fact thirdly God's mercy is astonishing that he should show mercy to any is remarkable that he should show mercy to me is astonishing. That the Messiah, who is God over all, should take on human flesh and, and be a man in Nazareth and, and choose to go to the cross to pay the price for my sin, whose resurrection proclaims that I am completely forgiven and justified, is, is breathtaking. And he's forever worthy to be praised. How comforting it is to know that this salvation, my salvation, is God's decision and he will never change his mind. Isn't that comforting? That he knows me at my worst and yet he chose to love me and save me. That's certainly how the Apostle Paul felt the worst of sinners. You know, as I know my own sin, I think it's astonishing that he saved me. If there's hope for Paul, the apostle, Paul Rees, the preacher, then there's hope for everyone. There's hope for everyone that we meet. Fourthly, God's glory drives our mission. To see every ethnic group and nation standing on the final day, singing as his saved people. That's what the Bible says is going to be true. And here's the great motivation for our prayers and for our evangelism. We head out the door and invite people to come at Christmas. Not as um, salesmen who have to try and win a sale. Who have to try and convince people. God has the elect that he's going to save. And he uses people like us. He uses our prayers. He uses our invitation. We don't know who the elect are, but we know that as I head out and share the good news, God will be saving his people. I find this immensely freeing as I deal with people. God is sovereign. People will hear. They will respond to the gospel. If the sun has come up today, it is because God is saving people today. And there's great hope. It doesn't rest on their merits and how good or great they are. It's all undeserved mercy, therefore there's hope for everyone. And so therefore, we can freely invite people and say, come along, come along. Come and look at Jesus. Come and trust Jesus, knowing that he will get great glory to himself. As peoples from every kindred, tribe, and nation will one day stand before the Lamb and praise him. In heaven for all eternity. This knowledge that God elects and saves doesn't actually, um, the caricature means that people will not bother sharing the gospel, but that's not true of the Apostle Paul, is it? His unceasing anguish, his great sorrow, his great longing for the people, knowing that God will save people, sends him out on mission, out throughout the world. That's why he's writing this letter to the church in Rome. He wants to go to Spain. He wants to keep sharing the good news. There's more unreached people. He's going to the next territory. That's why he's writing this whole book. And may God use these truths to comfort our hearts today and to give us great boldness as we invite people this Christmas. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Our Heavenly Father, we're humbled by your word. Uh, Lord, lots of questions come into our minds and our hearts. But we thank you that you've revealed these things to us. And so we pray that we may settle our hearts with the knowledge of your amazing mercy. Lord, may it spur us to a life of gratitude and worship and service and love. Father, we thank you that, uh, as you said to Paul uh, uh, in his missionary travels, that you had many people in that city. They should not fear the tumult, but keep sharing the good news. Father, we believe that there are still many people in this city that you want to save. Give us courage and boldness and love as we seek to hold out the hope of Jesus in this lost place. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.